All right, will you guys bow your heads and pray with me this morning? Father, I would ask that you would be present here in this time. You would go before us. You would open our minds to understand your scriptures. Um, And I pray that you would speak to us here in this room this morning. And I pray that everything that is said and everything that is heard um, can be done for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, as you probably heard at some point this week, or if not, you know, you may have, may have at least gathered from the readings, today is not a super normal Sunday. It's still normal time. We're still green. Um, but today we're celebrating the Feast of the Transfiguration, right? It's the day that we celebrate and we ponder the weird, crazy thing that just happened to Jesus in Luke 9. Um, And it is also, conveniently enough, the day that Chris asked me to preach. Um, So thank you, Chris, for that. Thanks for giving me an easy one. Really, really easy to understand passage. Real, you know, uh, right down the pipe here. So thank you for that. Appreciate it. Um, But really, this morning, what we're going to try and do is sit and meditate together on this event of the Transfiguration. And, and, and honestly, I do feel pretty, pretty underqualified uh, coming to this text this morning because it's, as I've been thinking about it, it's this huge momentous event in Jesus's life. And in some ways, maybe in a lot of ways, I, I still feel like I really don't know everything or maybe most things that are going on in this text. Um, but luckily for me, this makes me feel better. I'm not alone in this. Um, As an example, uh, this biblical scholar, Leon Morris, who if you're familiar with any biblical scholars, he's incredibly prolific, really, I mean, he wrote a commentary on, I think, everything. Um, And he begins his commentary on the, the transfiguration by saying, it is not easy to see what happened at the transfiguration or why it occurred, right? So he starts off by saying both the what and the why of the transfiguration are not easy. Um, And I think just by hearing the passage, we could all agree with that. It seems it's not abundantly clear what is going on there. And I can't help but wonder, I'm a curious person, why, why this might be so? Like, why is it so, it just seems so weird and out of place when this is read for us? And I think at least part of the answer is that if you're anything like me, you come to this text with so many different types of questions, right? So... There might be what you would call the ontological question or the metaphysical question, which is what precisely happened to Jesus's body, right? Was this, as some people say, his divine nature shining through, or was this a preview of his glorified human nature that's kind of reaching back into time? Was this the real Jesus that he usually suppressed, whatever in the world that could mean, or... um, was this was this just this was this just a one-off thing? There's so many uh, questions of what exactly metaphysically happened to Jesus at that moment. And then there's also what you might call the existential question or the experiential question. What what must it have been like to be there, to see what the disciples saw, to hear the words, the audible words of God the Father that the disciples heard. Um, to actually experience the glory of the Lord on top of the mountain. I have almost zero answers to that question, but that's, that's a question we bring to this text, the experiential question. Or there might even be what you would call the historical question, right? The, the details concerning 
you know, where they were, it's actually funny, there's a nerdy scholarly debate on what mountain they were on, and people have, you know, very uh, strong opinions as to what precise mountain in Judea this happened on. Um, but the answer is that nobody knows. Um, but it, it, where, where were they? What exactly did Jesus look like? Was it just his clothes that were glowing, or was Jesus glowing? What did Moses and Elijah look like? How did the disciples know it was Moses and Elijah? Presumably, they have never seen Moses and Elijah in their lives. So how did they know it was them? Right? These historical questions, what, did it, what were the actual details like to be there? And finally, there might be what you would call the literary question. What does this event, this transfiguration, what does this mean in the context of Holy Scripture for us this morning, in the context of Luke's gospel, and why is it there? And so this is, this is kind of interesting, and I admit from the, from the beginning this is pretty contrived, right? This is just me imposing something on the text. But at, at some level it does seem like each of our supplemental texts this morning kind of speaks to one or another of those different questions, right? So ex- Exodus 34 speaks of Moses' shining face on the mountain. It's a clear parallel to the transfiguration in so many different ways. Um, And that kind of invites us from the very beginning to think of a similar ontology or similar metaphysics as what happened to Jesus is, seems to be a similar thing that happened to Moses in Exodus 34. Psalm 99, it records the trembling worship of the majestic God who speaks out of the cloud that's experienced, experienced by all who call on him and obey him. And then Peter, in his letter, speaks of the historicity of the transfiguration event. Peter was really there. He was an eyewitness. He heard the very voice from heaven, and he knew all the details that we wish we did. And yet, in each of those three passages, I think there's a little hint in in all of them leading us elsewhere, right? Moses' face was glowing on the mountain, but in the text, it seems like it's glowing precisely because he received the very revelation of God on the two tablets on top of the mountain. The psalmist records that those that experience God's glory in the cloud, he equates those in Psalm 99 as being those who, quote, kept his testimonies and the law that he gave them. And then Peter, even in the midst of acknowledging the fact that he literally saw the transfiguration happen, he seems to say that the prophetic word of the scripture is more fully confirmed than even God's audible word on the mountain. So all this points us to what I'm going to focus on this morning, and that is this, the very word of God, right? And I spend spend time on this at the beginning because I think it's so important, especially in more difficult and kind of esoteric texts like the Transfiguration that lead us to ask all these questions because this, this word, This word, what it says, is preeminent. This is sufficient. This surpasses anything else we might want to know about the transfiguration event. We need to look first and foremost at what the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God tells us about it. And if all of our other questions aren't answered, so be it. Um, So this morning, in other words, we're going to only consider what I call the literary question. What the transfiguration is doing in the context of Luke's gospel. So I make no pretense to attempt to answer the other questions. I just want to focus in on what Luke in his inspired account is saying by this passage. So without further ado, if you do have your Bibles, open them up to Luke chapter 9. 
Um, I'm going to look at verses 28 through 36 that Chris read for us just a minute ago. So as, as you're turning there, a little context for the Gospel of Luke. It's divided pretty broadly into five major sections. You've got the infancy and um, the introduction accounts in chapters 1 and 2. You've got the beginning of both John the Baptist's ministry and Jesus' ministry right next to each other in chapters 3 and 4. Uh, you've got Jesus' ministry in Galilee, chapters 4 through 9. That's where our text is. Um, then you've got the long travel section of Jesus heading to Jerusalem in 9 through 19. And finally, he arrives in Jerusalem in chapter 19. And the rest of the book is the passion and resurrection narratives. So this transfiguration, this account that we just read, happens near the end of Jesus's ministry in Galilee, kind of his, his hometown area. Uh, actually, just a few verses before Jesus sets his face like flint and starts heading on this long journey to Jerusalem. And so bringing the context a little bit closer, this is really important. If you look on either side of our passage in Luke 9, you'll notice that right before and then just a little bit after the transfiguration, Jesus is talking to his disciples about his death, his upcoming death. That's very significant. It's on both sides. And in fact, for Luke, the transfiguration is explicitly tied to this conversation before um, in verses, what is it, I think 18 through 27, that whole conversation, because Luke literally begins our passage with now about eight days after these sayings, these sayings referring to setting the context of that whole conversation they just had before. Does that make sense? So, um, and what these sayings include are Peter correctly proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah for the first time. It includes Jesus explaining that so his messianic inauguration only can happen through his death and then also through the dying to self of the disciples. And finally, it includes Jesus telling of his coming future glory in verse 26. And this conversation culminates in one of Jesus's kind of cryptic sayings that, you know, some of the people standing around him won't die before they, quote, see God's kingdom. And I think clearly in this context, that refers to the transfiguration. Seeing God's kingdom coming before they die is literally happens right now. Um, so all of these things, all of this conversation should be on our mind as we approach our passage this morning. So we're going to pick up in verse 28. It says, Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. So this isn't the first time in Luke's gospel that Jesus brought only these three disciples along, and it won't be the last either. Um, and this is also, this is a major motif in Luke's gospel, that Jesus regularly goes up on mountains by himself to pray. Here's, this is a crazy thought that you guys can have this morning completely free of charge. Jesus himself, Jesus, very God of very God, regularly left off his busy schedule to make time to go up on a mountain to sit and pray to his Father in heaven. How much more should we make time to do that? That one's free. Well, let's keep going. In verse 29, as, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. So Jesus, just like Moses on the mountain, he starts to shine, starts to appear differently. His clothes start glowing. And then seemingly, out of nowhere, Moses and Elijah show up. And the significance of these two 
is somewhat debated. It goes back at least uh, to St. Ambrose that they're there as representatives of the law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah. And those are the first two sections of the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh. And that phrase, the law and the prophets, was often used as a shorthand to refer to the entire Hebrew Bible, right? So the significance of this would be, and this is actually what Jesus himself says at the end of Luke's gospel in chapter 24, that that Jesus is both the fulfillment of the entire Hebrew Bible and that he is the one that everything in it was written about. So that's part of the significance of those two. And more, I think it's also showing right, that Jesus is the true prophet, right, the prophet like Moses that Israel had been literally waiting for since Deuteronomy chapter 18. And so in being that true prophet, he fulfills Moses's legacy and Elijah's legacy. And um, beyond even this, it's just a little interesting thing. Uh, It's cool to note that neither Moses nor Elijah had a clear ending in the Old Testament, they both had kind of ambiguous endings to their stories, right? Elijah didn't die, right? He was famously carried away by the chariots of fire. And then uh, Moses did die in the land of Moab. But in that text, it's explicit that nobody knows where Moses was buried because God himself buried Moses. So neither one of them had super clear endings uh, in the Old Testament. So maybe that has something to do with them being here too. I don't know. Uh, Let's continue in verse 31. Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And so if you have the ESV like I do, or probably in other translations as well, but at least in the ESV, there's a little text note on this word departure, right? And it says in Greek, this is the word for exodus, right? This is not the normal Greek word for death. It can mean that, but it's the word that means exodus. And this is so significant, right? Luke's original readers, and and even us, when we hear this, we should have bells going all off in our brain. Um, This is certainly not a coincidence either, given Jesus' present company. He's literally talking to Moses about the Exodus. Like, this is incredibly, incredibly uh, significant. And so what Luke is doing, he's using something kind of like a double entendre, really, to link Jesus' upcoming death and by extension, his resurrection, with the historic redemptive event of the nation of Israel that constituted the very identity and hope of the nation, right? He's linking these two things together. Um, So to Luke, Jesus's death, maybe you could even say like that of the Passover lamb, initiates the new exodus of God's people. God's the exodus away from sin, away from death, into the promise of the coming kingdom and the life to come. So just in using that little word, Luke is packing a lot into this account here. And then, in the midst of all this insanity going on, enters everybody's favorite, Peter. Poor, sleepy, silly Peter. Verse 32, Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake... They saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, as they were going away, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. So it seems like Peter was so overwhelmed and probably overjoyed about what was going on and particularly, I think he was happy that, that he, that Peter, got to be a part of it. Um, 
he didn't want it to end, right? So Peter graciously offers to build tents so that these three never have to leave, um, so that this experience never has to end, right? But as Luke foreshadows with the not knowing what he said comment, uh, Peter, Peter was off base. Peter missed the point with this a little bit. If you keep going in verse 34, as Peter was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So this voice, presumably that of God the Father, speaks from the cloud like he did in the days of Moses, and he echoes what he spoke from heaven at Jesus' baptism, and he informs the disciples a little bit about Jesus. And he does so, actually, with three different Old Testament quotations, beautifully kind of woven together there. First, he says, this is my son. Jesus is God's son. And this echoes Psalm 2, right, with the anointed king that will come and conquer God's enemies. Then he says, this is my chosen one. And that echoes Isaiah 42 and the servant who will come and bring justice to all the nations. Eventually, we find out in Isaiah 53 by his own vicarious suffering. So this is my son. This is my chosen one. And finally, God says, listen to him. And this is a direct quotation, really, to Deuteronomy 18, where Israel is told to listen to the prophet like Moses. So, in other words, it seems like God is saying to Peter and to the others that Jesus is the king. Yes, you got that right, but he will be enthroned only by suffering a substitutionary death. And he says, Jesus told you this once already. He's going to tell you again. So, disciples, Peter, listen to Jesus. Victory, God's kingdom coming, is not won through glorious militaristic triumph, but through a suffering and humiliating defeat. That, I think, is the point that the disciples were not connecting in their minds. So Peter's fault here is to really to try and have his cake and eat it too, right? He wants the glory. He wants the kingdom. He wants the mountaintop experience, if you will, the literal mountaintop experience. But he, he wants to skip all that part about suffering and death to get there. He wants, Peter wants to just hang out with the glowing Moses and Elijah all day. He doesn't want to suffer with the king who's about to go and be beaten and mocked and killed. And Peter, I think this is no shock, is rather often like us. He doesn't want to acknowledge that even the glorious coming kingdom of God that bursts into our world is cruciform. Or in other words, it's cross-shaped. The coming kingdom of God is shaped like the cross. It's only entered into via suffering and death. And finally, we come to verse 36. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This, I think, is confirmation of what we talked about earlier regarding what Moses and Elijah represent after all this crazy stuff that happened, right? You have the Old Testament saints showing up. They're talking about the Exodus. Peter wants to build tents. There's a cloud. There's the voice from heaven. And then the, the disciples look up after all this. They look up, and what do they see? They see only Jesus. The pinnacle, the main point, the central focus of everything they had seen on the mountain, everything they had seen in their entire lives, is all wrapped up in simply Jesus. He is the focal point of everything. He alone is the significance. 
And this is maybe, as an aside, another flaw of Peter's idea, right, that some particularly ancient commentators uh, said. Peter wants to make tents for all three people, right, which might suggest they're on par. It's almost like, yeah, Jesus, I'll, build, I'll, build, I'll even build you a tent next to Moses and Elijah. But that has come so far from the truth. Because even compared with arguably the two most significant Old Testament saints, Jesus alone stands supreme. And in light of all the magnificence and the glory of the Lord Jesus, what happens? The disciples' mouths are shut, and they kept silence before him. So in light of all this, doing what we've done this morning, addressing the literary question of what the transfiguration narrative is doing in the Gospel of Luke, what can we say by way of application? Um, I'm just going to briefly suggest two things this morning that really we've already seen in detail from the passage itself. But the first is the primacy of Jesus. More than anything else, what this passage shows us and what the entire Feast of the Transfiguration is about is Jesus, right? And that seems, you know, cliche or too obvious, but it, that, is, that is the point of this text. When the disciples looked up after everything that went on, they saw only Jesus. Oh, may that be true of us. May we look up and see only Jesus. Because how often in our lives, how often in my life at least, do I look to other gods? Do I look to other messiahs, other saviors to satisfy us, to meet our needs? Right? How often do we worship at the altar of the gods of money, of sex, of power, of popularity, we expect politicians or pastors or professionals to fix our world for us. We look, perhaps more often than, any, than anything else, to ourselves. We, we tell our own story. We meet our own needs. We create our own meaning. That's what we're told to do. We even use things like religion. We use theology. Maybe the members of this church, we use Anglicanism to define us and give us worth and value and meet our needs. But yet... When the smoke clears, the only one that can truly be left standing is Jesus. He is the culmination of Luke 9, and he is the culmination of all of the Christian life and hope. So Christian, this morning, I encourage you, look to only Jesus. Put all of your worth and value, your significance, your security, your purpose, your identity, your autonomy, your belonging, put everything in to Jesus. Put all of your eggs in that basket. Trust him to meet every single one of your needs. Rely on no one else, especially not yourself. Don't do that. Look up. Look up. Lift up your hearts. Look up from the mess and the ruckus and the hard things in life and fix your eyes on only Jesus. He will take care of you and nothing else can satisfy or compare. That's the first application, the primacy of Jesus. And the second, which in a lot of ways is really just an extension of the first, is the cruciform shape of the Christian life. Christianity from start to finish is cross-shaped. Even the glory of the transfiguration that we just saw in Luke 9, this high point, this mountaintop experience in the text explicitly points beyond itself to Jesus' suffering death. 
We're, we're like Peter, right? We want the best of both worlds. We want the highs of the Christian life without the lows. We want the mountaintops without the valleys. But that's not how it is. That's not what following Jesus is like. As Jesus himself says, the only way to life is through death. The full life of resurrection is found only through the death of the cross. And this is true whether you've been following Jesus for decades or if even right here, right now, you're still not sure if you want in on following Jesus or not. This is true whether you're in the midst of suffering and currently experiencing the dark night of the soul or if things are pretty calm, pretty chill for you at the moment. Either way, to every person in here, each and every one of us individually, the invitation is the exact same. It will not always be easy. It will certainly not always be fun. But it is and will always be worth it. True life, life and life to the full, is found in no other way than through death. So a German Lutheran theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, is famous for saying that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So to everyone here today, whether it's for the first time or for the thousandth, Christ is calling you. He is calling you to come and die. So the question is, will you enter in? Will you enter in through the cross? Will you come and die that you may truly live? In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.